0: Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates comparison rates not available in all states or situations prices vary based on how you buy. Okay, so you have to understand before i tell you this is that i'm from michigan not la not new york where y'all are used to all kinds of freaky stuff no i started off in the smallest midwestern university grand valley state go lakers the freshman year i meet the guy living next door to me i'm gonna call him otto his name is not otto he's from ohio nice guy super polite tells me he's a very devout catholic That's cool. Yeah, he says, but that's not all. Says he's always felt a calling. Since the time he was little, a calling to join the priesthood. And that's when all the other conversations on the floor stop. Silence. You can hear individual drops of warm beer spilling from half-empty kegs. What? You mean you're not going to? Dude, no way. Everybody's like, no way. You can't get freaky dicky, what? And so he says, calm down, calm down. Here's my thinking. I haven't taken any vows yet. In two years, I will. So right now I think it's very important I experience the ways of the world. So I understand how best to minister to my flock. Really? Did you discuss this with anybody? Cause I don't think that's the way that I need to know when I'm giving up. Fair enough. And from that point, from that moment, Otto becomes everyone's favorite debauchery experiment. Someone about to be celibate? It's the clearing call heard around the campus. Several ladies decide he needs to go out with a bang. And Otto decides to extend his exploration to various intoxicants to get a better real-world vantage point. Everyone wants to give him everything, which he accepts as part of his sacrifice. Wine, women, pills, herbs. Yes, I will have that brownie. Yes, I'll take a puff. Yes, you can stay over tonight. Yes, yes, always yes. (laughs) I look at him with envy, a world of unchecked hedonism for the greater good. What could be better? But it's all about to end. And I feel for the brother. One afternoon, I knock on his door. He peels himself from between two lovelies and we leave to go get a hamburger. We're walking and I ask him, When are you gonna take your vows of priesthood? He looks at me like I'm slow. Dude, dude, don't tell anybody, but I, I've moved on to plan B. Today on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, we proudly present my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. Stories from real people who make the fantasy real. My name is Glenn Washington. Who says Michiganders can't have fun when you're listening to Snap Judgment? Now, about eight years ago, hotel lobby, I see this guy in the middle of a rap crowd of admirers telling stories. I get to meet him. Turns out he's a really cool dude. And from then on, we see each other maybe once or twice a year. He's the kind of guy you always wish you knew better or live closer to. And recently, I got my wish. Again, a hotel bar. I've got nothing to do. And here comes Charles. I say, Charles, tell me a story. He does. And now I'm asking Charles to tell you.
1: I think the way I became a faith healer is a little convoluted. Uh, You don't just like apply. It's not like you apply for a job and say, hey, I'm going to be a faith healer. So I was a chubby little kid who moved a lot. I wasn't allowed to stay up past 8 o'clock, but I could stay up one night a week past 8 o'clock and the night BJ and the Bear was on. And I started hearing this sound. It sounded like a fan. So it was a little bit rhythmic, but a little bit off and there's other sounds around. There's the dog barking, there's traffic outside, there's the TV show you're watching, and soon those things fade away. And I'm listening to this whirling, whirling sound, and I freaked out. I started jumping over and over and over and over on the couch, running around in circles, you know, activity making the sounds less, I guess. My mom's like, all right, that's it, go to bed. So I go into the bedroom and I'm lying there, all the other sound starts to go away. And the sound, it's like it's really far away in the distance. Shoom, 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 shoom. But through that fan is this voice. It seems like it's way off in a distance. And it's Chuck, Chuck. I never told anyone. I moved every year. So every single year I went to a new school and you know, so it was harder to make friends and it was harder to be intimate because you didn't know people as well. So it's not like I had this lifelong friend I knew since preschool and I would share all my stories with him, like I didn't have that. There was this girl named Michelle, she was on my school bus. Um, I remember her because she had the most beautiful breasts I'd ever seen in my life at that point. <laughs> and she, we were 13 and, and she was in the back of the bus with me and she invited me to a summer camp and I went to her church summer camp. It was a Pentecostal camp and there was a tent off to the side of a big tent, and every night there would be a revival service where people from not at the camp would come also, and it would be like the old-fashioned, you know, fire and brimstone revival service. And I get to this amazing moment at this Pentecostal camp where they have a, a church service, you know, under a tent, and they have a church service, and all these people are speaking in tongues. It's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Not because I'd never heard it before, which is true, I'd certainly never heard of speaking in tongues before, but because the voices speaking in tongues sounded like the voices in my head. It was like, I was home, it was beautiful. I was like, oh my God, these people are all me, you know? And I wanted to be what they were. I wanted to be a part of their group. These people aren't suffering. They're celebrating. It was beautiful in my mind and confusing and amazing. And you have this preacher with like the twenty amp in front of him, you know, and he's 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 preaching, man, fire and brimstone. And I just remember standing and walking toward him and hearing the cicadas and hearing the voices and the amens and the thank you, Jesuses. It's a very powerful moment. That that moment of sitting in that chair and saying, Okay, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the altar. He gets me down on the altar and I become a Christian. And I, for the first time, I shut my eyes and lifted my head back. And I, the voices were flying in my head as they were most evenings. And I just started saying them out loud. They responded in tongues. And they responded to me in this this, this language that was in my head. I never fit in anywhere in my whole life and suddenly there's this god thing that seemed really nice and comforting there's these people speaking in this language that i hear in my head this thing i was afraid of my entire life the preacher i started going to church and he's like come meet me at my office let's talk and it was more of like a talk of theology like here's what's going on i wasn't raised in the church here's what we believe you know let me help you with stuff which is great do you understand that what you're hearing in your head that you speak out loud are God's angels speaking through you, that you have a gift. So you have a strong personality. You can learn how to preach. You don't need to be educated. You can speak from your heart. God is with you. His angels live in your head. It was beautiful. It was music to my ears because suddenly here's a group of people, adults, who said I I, I had a gift. And and, and very quickly I, I became more and more affirmed. I'd have people walk up to me and say, when you spoke in tongues at church, um, you know, my 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 varicose veins don't bother me anymore. And I heard you, and I just focused and said, angels are letting out. I'm the, the angels are open. I'm going to let that angel heal me through his voice. Um, you helped me under. I didn't understand what the preacher was saying. And when you started speaking in tongues, gave me clarity to what, what what he was saying to understand what's going on in my life. My son is an alcoholic. Now I understand better what I'm going to say to him. There was a guy, and he was a missionary through the church. He had just come back from the Columbia. He was a missionary, and this man encouraged me to um, go use my gift, the gift of of speaking in tongues. And he set up for me amazingly. So, if you can imagine this, I'm, I'm 13 years old. He set up for me to move to the Philippines the following year when I was 14 to go to the Philippines with a missionary family that he knew, an older couple, and he encouraged them to take me on for a summer, for a three-month summer, to go as an apprentice with this preacher, evangelical preacher in the Philippines. I did a training camp for three weeks in Missouri called MOI, Mission Outreach Incorporated Training Camp. It was the most intense place you've ever experienced. The counselors, they were just like boot camp instructors, man. They'd be in your face, you get up every morning at four, you have to go for a mile long run, and then they would you would have to recite Bible verses to, like say you went over the wall, like a, like in a military, the wall, you know, the rope go over the wall. Well, you'd have to do it again, they'd yell a Bible verse at you, and if you didn't know the Bible verse by heart, you'd have to go do it again. So they, like, you do this all day. There is a discernment where you are discerned to which of the gifts of the Spirit, which is in the Bible, and Acts, which one you have slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, faith healing. I, I was on a dock. I was swimming with a couple other people. We had like an afternoon off and we were swimming. I remember this because I don't know how to swim. So basically I was just sitting on the dock with my feet in the water. I had this bathing suit on, that's it. And this guy in like a powder blue suit says, Charles, it's time. I must've put a t-shirt on, but pretty much I was in a bathing suit and t-shirt with a bunch of men in a small chapel in powder blue suits. They sat me down and they said that the Lord had sent them to, to speak to me. I was alone, I was, a, I was just a kid, and these group of men. And they circled me and they had oil and they anointed my head with oil and said I was a special emissary of God. And they started praying over me and they started speaking in tongues. It was very uncomfortable um, and hot as hell in that room. And then one of them started saying, heal, go and heal, heal, go and heal. And that's when I realized that they thought I had the gift of healing. I had doubts the entire time. I, I, I was like, this, is, this just seemed like too much to me. It just seemed like that's something Jesus does. You know, like, like healing people, like you see a televangelist do it on TV and it got his powder blue suit on and I heal you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Call this number and give me money. And I just, you know, I, I wasn't an idiot and I always doubted it. It always seemed a bit much to me and that doubt was powerful because that doubt would drive me to prayer am I a faith healer? Is this what I need to do with my life? Please, God, please. You know, and it was this constant struggle I had between God and I of just being like, are you kidding, dude? Like, God, seriously, I'm healing people? I finally get to the Philippines. It's like 110 degrees, right? It's like, it's hot as hell. You are gonna imagine, you know, you're nervous, you're a kid. Uh, there's this huge military presence. So I'm staying with this missionary couple and I get to their house which is near Subic um, Naval Base and Clark Air Force Base, you start to get engulfed in the debauchery. Um, so you get, you get closer to, like, bars and whores and, and squalor. And I had never seen anything like that before. I never felt heat like that before. Are you kidding me? So when I'm in the Philippines, there's a very simple routine. We were there to save souls. And the real thing we were there to do was to street preach, which I loved. And then one day I'm, I'm preaching and I was getting into it. There was this Bible verse. I was really digging <clears throat> from Daniel and, you know, there's a very charismatic church and there's people speaking in tongues, people being slain in the spirit. Oh, it's just, it's a cacophony. And in the Philippines, people use gongs in the Christian service. It was crazy. It was just intense. And I'm preaching and from Daniel and then in the corner and I saw it, it felt ominous. Presence was a woman and she was carried in by four men on a big, huge board. A board, not, no handles, just on this board. Dirty as hell, looked homeless. And this woman was carried in and I knew exactly why she was there and exactly what was happening. She was there to be healed. Isn't that, isn't that I didn't want to heal somebody. I, I mean, I feel bad. I mean, of course I want to heal somebody if they're sick. I, I, I didn't want to deal with the fact that as a young Christian, that I doubted God. I, that, that's, that was the fear, right? Like, <sighs> I mean, because what if I doubted so much that the person didn't get healed? Or, or what if my doubt in God meant God would leave me? Or what if my doubt in God meant I wasn't a good enough Christian? I, I, I really struggle with that. And so, you know, what if I couldn't do it? What if I failed? You know, a, a lot was wrapped up in this for me. There she comes. Hush comes over the crowd. You can imagine. There's like 500 people in this auditorium. Hush comes over the crowd. and She comes down. And she's laid before my feet right there right there, where I was preaching. And the men who were carrying her walked away. And there she was. Her legs were crusty and nasty. And I was overwhelmed. And the crowd started, I think they were reacting to my overwhelmness. I think they thought I was working up to heal her. I was actually working up to freak out. And they started speaking in tongues and hallelujah, amen, hosanna. And I was like, oh, my God. And she's laid before me. And I dropped to my knees. I put down the microphone and I started to cry take my glasses off and I put my hands in my face and I'm just my hands are dripping with tears and, and sweat and inspiration struck and I said to myself you know what maybe I can heal people I don't know so I got my tears and I cupped them in my hand along with my sweat and I put them on her knees and I shook on her knees and then I lifted my hands up and uh, put my hand on her head and I put it on there all wet from my sweat and from my tears and I whoosh, pushed her back you know like a real hard push and pushed her back when I did that she fell back on the board and I, I was still like on my knees you know I'm still just kind of freaked out I start to stand up and as I stand she started to stand oh the crowd went It it, it was a cacophony of gongs and speaking in tongues and passion and screaming and I I was gone. I was like a shell. I I was exhausted. I looked around and, and, and she was walking with her hands in the air saying she was healed and I just walked out the side. I walked out the side door and I just fell to my knees and I threw up right outside the church. It was such an overwhelming experience. Did Jesus just flow through me and I healed a woman? Are you you freaking kidding me? It's not rational. I really was gone emotionally, and and I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. And right around this time, the voices I was hearing, they were these non-recognizable phrases and bits of words, and the voices became recognizable words. Now, I stop for a moment and picture what that means, right? I went from this indecipherable sounds to words, and the words were extremely clear. And it was always said with a question mark. Chuck. 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 I decided I was gonna fast, and I was gonna fast for a week or three or four days and be alone in the Philippines. I was just gonna fast and I was gonna pray. So I started to pray, but the problem is the lack of food, being in the Philippines, being scared. I got really, really manic, and I got really, really out of control, and I, I couldn't sit still in that room and pray, and I just started hearing the voices louder and louder and louder, and I was like, damn it, it was really intense, and I just started banging bang my head. On the floor, um, and I mean it, I, I, it. There's no metaphor. I tried banging my head on the floor. and just could feel the relief as my skull, part of my opening my skull on the front, started to split open, and the blood would rush down my face. I was just like this amazing, you know, just relief for some reason. That blood kind of calmed me down. I remember just saying, "Jesus, I. That's it. I quit. I'm yours. I. I, I give up. You know, whatever you say, whatever you want me to do." I didn't give my faith up or give God up. I did actually the opposite. I gave up my questioning. But about a year after that, I was in Haiti uh, with missionaries again. And one of the guys I was with um, got really sick. I mean, like, gonna die, 105 degree fever, sick. And the other people I was with all were gone for the day. It was just me and him in a hut, dude's dripping sweat. And there I am, I'm a faith healer. And he's a believer and I didn't heal him, you know, like I didn't, I, I went and found a nurse who lived in a nearby town like an hour away, I went and found the nurse and she healed him, like literally healed him with medicine, and, and, and that was it, I didn't think of it, why didn't I think of it, right? There's nobody around, it would have covered, would have totally tested the whole thing, right? But nobody's around, there's no offering play, just me and him and God. I could have healed him and saved his life. I didn't even think of it. I remember afterwards thinking, oh, wow, I wonder why I didn't heal him. I I would say that I didn't heal him. I didn't even try because I don't think I, I think deep down, deep down, I didn't believe. It seemed wrong. It seemed dirty. Blatantly, here's what I think happened. I think that missionary in the Philippines from Texas paid this lady 10 bucks and those guys to carry her in and pretend like she got healed and didn't tell me. And I really really, really, really regret that like i I really feel like I should have stood up to his ass. I left God. I quit being a Christian many years later at this point I'm nineteen years old, right? I'm going to college. I was getting my hair cut by my girlfriend, and I lost it. I saw a cupboard off in the distance, and I just looked at it and said, "I'm going in there and I the voices were flying, and I was out of control, and I just stood up, walked in that cupboard, and shut the door, and I wouldn't get out. And, you know, people were called, and I was put in an institution. <clears throat> I stayed in that institution a while. I was dangerous. I was given a bunch of medication. And guess what happened when I gave given the medication? The voices stopped. Wait a minute. The all-powerful God of the universe can be stopped by this pill but all these people are telling me I I, I, that God is flowing through me and I'm healing them and this guy's saying no you're schizophrenic and this pill will help you and the voices go away even though I take my almond medication and do all this stuff I still have relapses and I have problems and I hear voices sometimes and you know I have mental issues and that's what I struggle with you know and used to when I heard them. A night lying down or somewhere I would be like oh I don't know what you're saying God but just talk to me you know it's nice to have God you know grab your blanket and the master of the universe is talking you don't even know what he's saying and it's beautiful now I hear it and I'm like oh I guess my lithium level's off I need to go to the doctor for this or need to do that and it's it's not as fun (laughs) not as fun as when God was talking to you so I miss it I miss the voices I miss God
0: Thanks to our dear friend Charles Monroe Kane for sharing his story on Snap. You can find Charles on the Public Radio, he's a producer on Wisconsin Public Radio's fantastic program to the best of our knowledge. And he's got a brand new book. It's called Lithium Jesus. It features his faith healing exploits and much 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 more. All my friends are getting it for Christmas. Find everything Charles on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original sound design for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Eliza Smith. Now, then, when Snap Judgment returns, what's the best way to make a million dollars quickly? You just print it yourself. What could go wrong? When the My Dark Twisted Beautiful Fantasy episode continues, stay tuned. get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy episode today We're exploring what happens when you make a reality all your own. And some people say this whole rags to riches thing, is just part of the American dream. Well, it turns out Canadians have that dream too.
2: Think of this story as a tutorial on how to make that moolah. And Frank Barassa. Yeah, Barassa, it's uh, it's actually French. He's our guru. On his website, his bio reads, Insane Million Making Master Earner. And that's technically true. But first, let's go back to when Frank was in his early 30s when he made the most regrettable error of his professional life: getting rich legally. At the time, he had started and owned a brake pad and brake shoe business. I liked it an awful lot, it paid very well, I loved it. But of
3: course. I worked my ass off in that and I worked so much I ended up in the hospital, I was burnt out. I was popping tranquilizers like I liked on the Pez dispensers, uh, it, it was awful. At one point, I think it was at a red light. You know, it just occurred to me. You know, we work our asses off. We get up every, you know, day at seven o'clock. Who wants to get up at seven o'clock? I mean, nobody does. And everybody does that if for one single purpose. It's only to get money. Am I right or am I right? You know? So I said to myself, you know, why not just go straight to the money? I got to print my own money. And it's how the idea, you know, came about. It was at a red light. <laughs>
2: So just like that, Frank decided he wanted to counterfeit U.S. money because it's the most commonly used currency in the world. Truth be told, this wasn't Frank's first time breaking the law. In eighth grade, he ran a shoplifting ring and he stole some cars as an adolescent. But this was by far the most audacious project he had ever set his sights on. All my life, I tend not
3: to do that good with moderation, you know, it's just how I am. So go big and go home, hopefully,
2: yeah. So where did the aspiring counterfeiter go to learn about the trade? He went right to the source, which is actually Secretservice.gov. The website proudly displayed all the latest security features embedded in banknotes that make it frustrating for your average Kinko counterfeiter. For example, take a $20 bill. I got one here. I'm gonna hold it up to the light, and there's that invisible Jackson face. And then you have a special type of printing, forbidden font, serial
3: number, color shifting ink, little tiny eagle. And then you have the security thread. after that, polymer strip, raised ink printing. It gives the crispiness, some UV fibers, secret fonts. So you get with this huge to-do list, which you
2: know nothing about. Frank spent hours in counterfeiter chat rooms and forums, learning how to produce that flawless fake 20. So step one, and the most difficult step... The
3: super complex paper recipe, it's 75% cotton and 25% linen. While any of those two are, you know, not that difficult to get uh, separately, uh, when you start combining those two at this particular ratio, uh, you know, it raises red flags everywhere.
2: If the paper mill saw what Frank was getting at, they would probably say, yep, we can make that paper for you, Frank. And the next thing you know, it's the FBI. So Frank called the paper mill in Switzerland.
3: You cannot just be, you know, that Joe Blow calling from, you know, out of the blue. And my story was that I created this Wall Street blue chip paper trading company. Keystone Investment and Trading Company is what it was. I was uh, uh, Jackson Maxwell then. The premise was that uh, as one of the higher ups, uh, I was in charge of tackling, you know, some new
2: bonds that, that we wanted to put on the market. $20 bonds, of course. Frank asked the paper mill if they had any suggestions on how to make their bonds more secure.
3: You know, there's some special fibers and special chemical and special this, you know, could could, could you do that too or is that too complicated a thing for you? No, 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 we could do that, we could do that. Well, great. I used on them, you know, what I call my my sandwich effect. If you try to shove in a whole sandwich in anybody's mouth, you know, obviously they're going to choke on it. You got to, you know, feed him one bite at a time and, you know, give him time to swallow that. You can get them to to swallow, you know, a whole bread loaf if you want.
2: Over the next months, Frank subtly tweaked his order, asking them to add more security features to, you know, Full counterfeiters. He asked them to add linen to the cotton, then chemicals that can pass the security pen and black light test. Could you put, you know, the face of the president of our company? Say, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, drawing you like, you just send it in and we'll we'll, we'll have it produced for you. Okay, but like, didn't they like see the Jackson sketch and be like, hey, this is the guy on the 20. Like, wasn't that, was that not obvious to them? Yeah, it sure is obvious
3: for you because, uh, you know, it's it's your everyday currency. But uh, if I'm to discuss, you know, the watermark of Pakistan currency, I mean, you, you wouldn't you couldn't tell apart to whatever face they have on there. So, Tadam Andrew Jackson is
2: nobody. Finally, after two years, Frank picked up his perfect paper at the Port of Montreal. But he still had to take it home and run it through his printing press to make it look like a real $20 bill. Once the actual printing
3: started, it was the best day of my life. I would say because you know it, it's a it's a combination of so many things and hard work and look at the reward, my friend. It's awesome. You know uh, we print 200 uh, k per hour. So I mean uh, money is pouring out of the presses. You got stacks and stacks, and th- you got three foot stacks of it. You know everywhere. It was beautiful. Be- the most beautiful thing I ever saw. <laughs>
2: Uh but was there any point where like you you thought to yourself like I shouldn't I should quit or I should be I shouldn't be doing this?
3: No no no, it just not within my DNA. Cannot happen. It cannot happen. No. If I if I decided to go to the moon, I I sure
2: to f- go to the moon, that's for sure. Also Frank figured that if he did get caught, he was in Canada, he'd probably be sentenced to maybe 6 years and only serve one. Plus Frank was sure that the authorities would never be on to him. I, I use my, uh, my guts. It's, it's hard to describe. It
3: either feels right or it doesn't. It gives me a kick and then, come on, that's awesome, let's go. And my gut is never wrong.
2: Frank hid the money in a secret location. Then he hired an old friend who would sell the counterfeits for him so Frank could keep his hands clean. Now, Frank expected his phony money to sell like Hot Pockets. But for months, no one wanted his bills. It was frustrating, and I was doing nothing but wasting my time and waiting and waiting. At first, Frank was giving out $2,000 wads like free candy. And when he finally got his first customer, they only wanted a small order of 10000 which he would sell for $0.30 cents on the dollar. But then, one of his customers bumped it up to 100000 uh, it was the s- second uh, hundred
3: thousand dollar order from the same customer. The first repeat, then I knew the, the, I was I was no so rich. But what did he do with all that real cash? He well, should have, you know, popped out at least a bottle of champagne, one at least. But I, I didn't do that. You know, I was right back to work. I I didn't change any part of my lifestyle. I Still have the same car same clothes, I you know, don't have any fur coat or stuff like that, I don't do that. You know, I wanted to have it done as soon as possible and sell
2: it and, you know, it was all work, it was all business. His customers went up to 250000 then 500, then finally $1 million. Soon, word got around and Frank had buyers in almost every continent. And then Frank's friend found another customer, this time a local guy, and a $100,000 deal was set up for the very next day. But Frank was short on time. So he did something kind of stupid. He drove his car, picked up the counterfeits, and showed up to the rendezvous point himself.
3: It was a very, very safe location, and everything felt good. Frank's friend was there in the parking lot waiting for the handoff. But, All right, so uh, you know, to give it to me, and uh, and I'll call you later. You know, when this is done, I said, no, I'll, I'll just you know pull in over there. There was a, a garage there nearby. Well, what do you want to pull in? Just give it to me. No, I, I don't want to give it to you. I, I, I'm just going to pull in there. Uh, what is it with you this morning? There's nothing with me this morning. Yeah, yeah, stupid little argument. But, you know, the, it,
2: it, 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 I know my gut kept saying, you know, just pull in there. So Frank drove his car into the building's garage and handed the counterfeits to his friend. Then Frank drove away and his buddy finished the deal in person.
3: Bada bing, bada boom, was as simple as that, Yep. Yeah. So a, a week after the purchase with this new customer, I was asleep at, at my girlfriend's house uh, this night, and uh, at five o'clock, boom, my girlfriend woke up. And he said, wake up, wake up. I said, why wake up, what's happening? Well, people are knocking. It's the police, I think it's the police. Then I opened up my eyes, at said, not today. I knew, I knew. <laughs> Well, they knocked, and and then we opened up the door, and then, you know, uh, 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 a swarm of officers poured in the house. My main thought was protect my girlfriend. You know, her children were there, and they were crying. The first two grabbed me, the next two grabbed my girlfriend, and then the one, you know, go closer and tell her, you you know, to just sit tight and, you know, let me do my thing but you can't even say that, you can't do that because they're pulling her away from me and I want to get closer. It's devastating, it's devastating. My heart was bleeding.
0: Will the master of easy money go down like a chump? Has his genius plan blown up in his own face? Stay tuned for the final chapter of the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy episode in just a moment. Snap Judgment, baby. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and when last we left, master counterfeiter Frank Barraza The cops just broke down the door at his girlfriend's house, and Frank was in a world of hurt.
3: A swarm of officers poured in the house. My main thought was protect my girlfriend. You know, her children were there and they were crying. The first two grabbed me. The next two grabbed my girlfriend, and I, I was with her for a long time—14 years. She knew what I was about, but she didn't know what I what I did. I, I mean, she just freaked out until she started screaming at me. You know, they got the warrants out and everything, and then this—they searched the house. They, they were so happy because, uh, like I said uh, at the beginning, of every new customer, you know, uh, I had to hand out some uh, samples as well. I had a million uh, sitting in the basement and Jesus Christ were really thrilled with that. I-, I could hear him downstairs, you know, going, woo-hoo! I kept saying to myself, you know, Jesus Christ, calm down. Those are just sample I'm ending out, you know, this is nothing.
2: <laughs> but uh I didn't find it funny and no mean. It turned out Frank was selling his counterfeits to a local undercover cop. Frank was taken to a holding cell where he was interrogated by the RCMP, which is kind of like the Canadian Secret Service.
3: They said, well, we want to talk to you about all that we found. I said, well, I have nothing to say. You know, my lawyers come in and I have nothing to say. They said, well, you, you might because, uh, you know, I'm going to seize the house. I'm going to seize the vehicles out there. That that was uh, uh, implying my girlfriend's uh, house because it was hers. I was at her place. You can't let that happen. She doesn't have anything to do with that. And then as soon as they found out about this leverage, I was a parrot from then on. I mean, it was just me, I mean, pouring and pouring about, you know, everything being mine and
2: mine and mine. And
3: I was so done. My life was over.
2: As the RCMP wrapped up their interrogation, Frank was perplexed to see two men enter the room. Americans. And the U.S. Secret Service come in, I was stunned. They were
3: telling me that uh, according to this article of law and blah blah blah, blah which they had me read. Uh, they said, uh, so that's it, so uh, we're just finishing up here and then we'll leave. I said, well, what do you mean we'll leave, where to? He said, well, you're coming with us in the U.S.
2: Despite Frank's attention to detail, he failed to consider that since he counterfeited U.S. dollars, the Secret Service could intervene. After all, That's what the Secret Service was first created for, to stop counterfeit money. They told Frank that he could serve up to 60 years in a federal prison. Whoa. Whoa. You know, that meant
3: I wasn't going to see, you know, my my father anymore until he died. And, you know, I was to have no visits because it was too far. I was, you know, well, my,
2: my life was over. Frank was sent to jail without bond, and a week later, his lawyer stopped by.
3: And then he's facing me, you know, uh, you know, beside the glass, and he said, uh, Hi Frank, how's it going? I said, uh, how the f*** do you think I'm going? You know, you want to ship me stateside? Well, I'm, I'm crushed. Calm down, calm down, calm down. I halted the extradition. You're going nowhere. You're staying here.
2: Remember Frank's gut instinct to drive into that building to make that trade-off? Well, that saved him big time. On the day of the transaction, some helicopter footage had only showed Frank's car driving in and out of the building's garage and nothing else. No handoff. So without solid proof, Frank would no longer be extradited to the U.S. He'd only be tried in Canada. Jesus
3: Christ, I I was floating on air, floating on air, because now my my math, Was that, you know, worst case scenario was to get, you know, six, eight years-ish. So that came back as a reality. So I was floating on air. Floating on air.
2: But still, it wasn't over for Frank. He was actually facing 12 years in Canada instead of the six he had originally hoped. But he figured he tries luck again. He sent his lawyer back into the court to fight the sentence.
3: They would argue 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 and then when they would come out and then i would refuse he went from 12 and, and 8 and 10 and 9 and 7 and, and then at some point it started to get you know really formal you know as as your lawyer you know i'm here to represent you i'm here to get what's best out of it from you i advise that you take this i understand that i do not accept and then we get pissed and we fight then I said, well, I need, uh, first of all, I need my girlfriend's house back. I need all the cars back. I need to make sure she's clear of everything. This is on top of the list. Otherwise, I don't care. Then we came down to five, and I'd still say no. And then we'd come up in the court, in, in, in the hallway, and say, well, what do you want me to do? Where do you want to go with it? Did you want a $5 fine? What it is that you want from me? I, I was pushing the guy. He's the greatest lawyer in the whole world. And I got him down to three years. Well, I got three today, and that's it. He's pissed. I mean, I can't be, you can't even talk anymore. We just yell. I said, I'm not taking three. Well, that's all right. You're not taking three. We're going to trial today, so brace yourself. All right, let's go to trial. I, I knew I knew, I had some cards sitting there. I didn't tell anyone. There's a little uh, hallway in between uh, double door type of thing. And when me and Mallory, we get both inside the double door, I said, hey, uh, I, I got I to gotta talk to you about something. He said, there's no talking anymore. The trial's beginning. He's inside. It's right now. And there's nothing more to be said. Yeah, yeah, I got to tell you about that. What do you want? Would it be any good? Could you do something good if I told you I had $200 million that I could give? So what do you mean you got $200 million?
2: Yep. Frank still had $200 million secretly stashed somewhere out there over the rainbow so Frank wanted to negotiate on his own terms. He would give back his remaining stash to the Crown, but in exchange, he wanted to do no time. And then he said, You gotta be kidding me, are you crazy? Yeah, yeah, sure
3: I am, yes. But can you do anything good with that? Wait for me. So I wait uh, right there, right outside the double door. He went inside the courtroom, he talked to the Crown for 30 seconds. Both of them zoom right back by me out of the courtroom. And the deal was went for three years, and it was to go
2: to no time. Zero. Well, obviously, the Crown couldn't turn down getting $200 million counterfeit dollars off the streets. So they took the deal, but they upped the stakes. Because not only did they want the money, they still wanted Frank behind bars. So instead of getting Frank to just hand over the money the next day, the Crown strategically set the money return date a month out in advance. Why? If the Crown could somehow find the stash before that date, the whole plea deal would be off. For the next month, it was a crazy race for the government to find the cash and Frank to hope that they wouldn't. From this second on,
3: they were behind me 24-7 every day. I would often wake up, they'd be right in front of where I lived, and they'd sit there and they'd just wait for me to
2: leave, and then they would just, just trail me all day. Frank was sure that his phones were tapped, so he just kept his mouth shut for a month. Then finally, the date arrived. That morning, he was greeted by a motorcade of six black SUVs and a K9 unit. They were
3: really pissed uh, because, like I said, the whole plan was for them to catch me with this uh, additional money. And they they failed at that, so they were really pissed. So uh, we get in their
2: uh, SUVs. And uh, we drive over there. When they finally arrived at the secret spot, it was just a hotel parking lot. There, Frank pointed to a regular old storage truck that was protected by nothing but a small padlock. It was in plain sight.
3: The money was there, and they, they, they counted everything, and I'm just standing outside in the parking lot and just watching it. And it was uh, I don't know it was surreal even that it had you know worked exactly like I had planned it. I had gotten away, and it was something I would never do again. But Jesus Christ, I can't pull even this off. I mean, where's the where's the limit? Do I even have a limit? Everything was going smoothly, and then we drove to the police headquarters. And then I said, well, uh, you know, it's a good thing that, you know, this is done. You, you got your, you know, big bust. And, you know, I got much. I think it's a win-win. Plus, you know, I, I'll never do that again. I said, well, maybe, maybe you're happy. What do you mean? What's that supposed to
2: mean? I don't know. You tell us. I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. Apparently, after the deal between Frank and the Crown was struck, the secret service discovered that something wasn't adding up. They went to the paper mill in Switzerland and found out that with the amount of paper Frank had ordered, he had probably printed closer to 250 million, not 200. They, they,
3: they knew 50, uh, you know, was missing, but it wasn't missing. It wasn't missing like I, I sneaked it out of there. I, I sold it. So I had 200 left. I'll, I'll give you. I'll, I'll give it back. You know, I didn't know.
2: Whether that's the truth, at least the Secret
3: Service will never know. It might very well be in a hayfield <laughs> near a Buxton, uh, alongside a, a brick wall under a rock that uh, doesn't have no earthly reason to being there. You know? <laughs> Is that a confession?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Who knows? You know, it might be there. It might not. You know, if you go check it out, let me know. Let me know what you're finding.
0: (laughs) I don't know how you do it, Frank, but thank you for sharing your story. Frank is now on the other side of the law. He's a counterfeit protection consultant with business and government clients all over the world, and he guarantees that once he secures a system of currency, even he cannot hack or duplicate it. Frank has big plans for even the U.S. Wow, well, if Big Brother gets on board.
3: I thought for sure, and I would have loved to help out the U.S. currency. They got billions and billions getting counterfeited every year. I could stop that. I could, I could pay for the Obamacare myself. But uh, is that going to happen?
0: I would love, but uh, we'll see. Hopefully, we'll see. All right, Frank. We'll be waiting for you to pay for Obamacare all by yourself. We'll have a link to all things Frank on our website, snapjudgment.org. Original sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Davey Kim. Yep, it's about that time. The end of the Snap Judgment episode, but not the end of Snap Storytelling. Friends, if you like what you just heard, and come on, you you like what you just heard, know that there is so much more where that came from. Do not miss the magic. I pity the fool that misses out. Subscribe to Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast. Let somebody know. And a few weeks ago, we said we were gonna give out a J.J. Arms, classic action figure not available in stores and of all the people that contacted us, we are proud to announce today, Mark Ristich, the winner is, drum roll please Poppy Humphrey Congratulations Poppy, we'll be contacting you soon Snap Live, you gotta understand the electrifying show that will make you laugh, make you cry, laugh some more. The nation's top storytellers, backed by the beats of Bell's Atlas. Don't miss out. Portland, Seattle, Detroit, Chicago, Louisville, Iowa City. That's right. More cities being added to the Snap Judgment Live tour each and every day. Get tickets right now at the snapjudgment.org. It's gonna be crazy. And Snappers, you're asking, so I'm telling. Our sister podcast, Snap Judgment, presents Spooked. It's in deep. Brand new, never-before episodes each week until Halloween. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a minute and never, ever, ever, ever listen low. Snap is produced by the team that keeps its beautiful, dark, twisted fantasies to itself, mostly. Except for the internets. Please give it up for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. The dark and brooding, Pat Mercedes-Miller, the twisted Anna Sussman, the beautiful David Kim, Eliza Fantastic Smith, Nancy Jesus Walks Lopez, Joe Late Registration Rosenberg, and Renzo ain't nothing but a gold digger Gorio, Leon Morimoto in Paris Liz Power Mac Adiza, not a college dropout, Egan, Teo do not decide. Jasmine Aguilera has her own fashion line and here's the thing, this is not the news no way is this the news, in fact you could read every scrap of gossip about me and Kim Kardashian playing horseshoes at the back of Bubba's Barbecue Shack and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is But this is WNYC.